Good morning, church. If my calculations are right, this is our eighth week together and the fifth different way we've uh, we've tried to do this. If you're getting a little bit uh, dizzy, then you might be in the majority. And if you think it's a struggle, and it is a struggle you know, for many of us, um, you know, it was a good reminder for me last week. I mean, I was in my shorts, I was in my t-shirt, in my own home on a comfortable couch next to my best friend, and it just wasn't the same. <laughs> and I had to talk into a camera again. I thought I was over the talking into the camera piece, but or into my phone, but it didn't work. But you know, each time we set plans in place, the culture's changing. We set new plans, and the culture changes. And just so um, I'm sure you know, if you don't, just be assured that we are like we're tracking all these things and figuring out what is the best way for us to lead our people in worship, and in teaching, and discipleship, and in community, and seeking God for that answer um, over and over again. I'm excited to begin a new study this week. We're gonna go back into the scriptures, into a new book study, and we're going to venture into the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You can be turning to Ezra if you have your Bible or your Bible app with you. We'll have the, the scriptures up on the screens as well if you do not. Now, this series we've entitled Refresh, okay? and what we've seen is that these books speak loudly to some very contemporary issues that we face as followers of God. They speak to the sovereignty of God. We'll talk about that a little bit today, especially his sovereignty over secular leaders. They talk about um, the need to live holy in an unholy world, about turning back to God, about our desire and, and that longing within us to add personal value to the world that we live in, about the power of vision and passion about deciding which battles in life are really worth fighting after all. The value of godly leaders, the compassion of God, how to celebrate as God's people, and also how do you, how do you respond when you fail at God's plan? All of those come through these books. They address some of our greatest questions and some of, I think, our deepest longings as God's people. Now, you have likely heard and most likely even read many times but not necessarily so about the sin cycle of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament okay it, it, it happens over and over again where, where God would bless the people okay? and then they would become complacent and they would embrace other gods and they would sin and God would bless them and they would repent, and then God would bless them again. Now, it didn't come out very good on your written outline, but this is what that's supposed to look like, okay? This cycle that we see consistently. Um, so I put that graphic in there for you. In the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 8, this is how God describes that. I'm pointing at that one. This is how God describes that picture that you're looking at. He says, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. That's the cycle. If we're not careful, it certainly was the cycle for them. God had warned the people that if they persisted in sin, 
if they persisted in idolatry, that he would send them into captivity by another nation. But the people ignored not only God, but they ignored also the prophets that he sent to warn them. And instead, they charged with purpose into sin and disobedience and idolatry. And so God used the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon to remove Israel from Judah, from their land, to destroy their temple, and even to take all the sacred items from the temple as plunder and put them in the temple of a foreign little g god. Right? But God had also promised them, when we read through the scriptures, that the captivity would only last for seven years. Seventy years, I'm sorry. At the end of this time, God said he would not only raise up leaders from among the Jews, but as we're going to look at today, he would also amazingly move the hearts of foreign kings to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem, reminding us of this, this principle that overshadows all of Scripture and life, that God is faithful in keeping his promises even when his people are not. Now, the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah that we're going to look at, they contain the story of the return of the Jewish people after these 70 years to Israel. Now, incidentally, uh, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi are also contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. So we find out part of what's going on in the nation by reading the words of those prophets that they've written for us. God was working among his people. And in this story, in these books, we're going to discover in these details anew how God is sovereign. How he faithfully leads his people to places where he can bless them. That's the twist of the, in, the, in the plot, if you would. So to start in the series, we're going to look at two passages today in Ezra. Two passages to help us realize that God Almighty, like our Father in Heaven, that he is the King of the kings. He is the main one. Now, um, has anybody told you that we're in an election year? Have you just noticed that from some of the scuttlebutt and talk around that we're in there? Right. Like, I know how people get during these times, okay, when all of life and all of the future and the whole world seems to depend on whether or not my particular candidate gets elected. Okay? Now, the hype is already in full progress, right? And both Christians and non-Christians alike. Saying that hurts me to say that Christians and non-Christians alike are angry and alienated and trying to shame people who don't see things exactly like they do. And for however many months, misguided in my estimation, people in the church are going to cash in their credibility as a follower of God and offer it on the altar of politics, of politics. And I think God's heart breaks at that. Now, I have chosen to preach this message in July in hopes that maybe at least for a number of us we can, we can cut short that process, right? Instead of October or November when things are in full hype in that way. Um, I just think that it's that important that we talk about it from Scripture. Because 
scripture is going to remind us, and these books will particularly remind us that God is sovereign over elections. He is sovereign over governments. And he is sovereign even over presidents. Hear what the word of God says in Proverbs 21, verse 21. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. That was from Daniel chapter 3, verse 21. It says, he changes, God changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the understanding. Listen, like the world has been coming to an end ever since I started voting in presidential elections. And since that time, we have voted in President Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And yet here we are today. The world has not fallen apart yet. And I can only assume that the feelings were strong before I was of an age to vote. But certainly over my lifetime, I think things have gotten progressively worse. And the division has become greater. And the animosity is simply out of control. Ezra and Nehemiah are going to remind us that it was God who orchestrated the history of Israel, including the captivity and their return through pagan kings to give people through it all, God was at work. God is the king of the kings, and he will continue to work his plan for the good of his people and for the salvation of the world. Of that I am sure. So here's the story. Back in 770 or 722 B.C., okay, God allowed, allowed the powerful Assyrian Empire to conquer the nation of Israel. And he carried away its people into captivity. And this is an explanation of that event and the why given in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17. You can read it in verses 7 through 19. I'm just going to read part of it. It says, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. And if you read through history, you realize that's exactly right, because a little bit more than a century later, in three waves over a 20-year period from 605 B.C. to 586 B.C., God allowed the Babylonians to invade Judah for the same reason, and the people were taken into captivity. Now, be assured that these events did not take God by surprise, nor did they come without warning for his people. And yet in spite of their sin, Jeremiah had prophesied that God would only allow his people to be in captivity for 70 years. Here's what we read in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. It says, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt. Now, if you are a um, particularly intellectually oriented person and you like facts and history, 
this will be of interest to you, that 70 years is a very particular or specific punishment for the nation. God had told the Israelites back in Leviticus chapter 25 that a part of being his nation is that one year out of seven years, they were to give the land a Sabbath or a rest and not to plant their crops. He said in Leviticus 26, the next chapter, and if you don't give the land a Sabbath, I will give the land a Sabbath. I will take care of it myself. And so Israel, as they did many things, as we do as well at times, right? Israel ignored God's command. And beginning in the time of King Saul, they did not give the land its Sabbath. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 25, we read that God explained to the Jews they would remain in captivity seven years. If you are a mathematician, just basic math, all you need, you realize once every seven years, it won't surprise you then that it was 490 years between the time of Saul and when Judah went into captivity under Babylon. One year, God said, for every Sabbath they had neglected. Now, the book of Ezra is going to begin at the end of the 70 years. Okay? When God's about ready to bring his people back. And by this time, both the Assyrians and the Babylonians had faded. And there was a new kid on the block, a new power, and that was Persia. And Persia's king was named Cyrus. So if you're in Ezra 1, look with me beginning in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. That's going to be really important in the story that he put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah to build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, meaning throughout the kingdom, wherever the Jews who had been dispersed in the captivity were at, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Go down a little bit. It says, Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar also brought these things with him, along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, God, again, was not surprised by this. And the reason, in part, we know that God was not surprised by this was that 150 years before this event happened, before Cyrus was even born, much less known, or the Persians were known, God said these words to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 through 26. He says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says of Cyrus, someone who wasn't even born yet, 
of a nation that wasn't even in power yet, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now throughout these two books, we're going to see how God uses the actions of kings, or if you translate it into our world, presidents or prime ministers, the actions of leaders of nations to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Even when the situation seems hopeless, like it did for these Jews who've been taken into captivity, it all seemed lost, like maybe it does for you at times, and me at times, in our life. Even during those times, God is in control. And he is working out his purposes promises for his people. That's what it means when we say that God is a sovereign. It means that he is in control. Now Cyrus um, apparently recognized the sovereign hand of God in his life, acknowledging that he held power in Persia only because God had given him that power. Even though he likely didn't worship God as the one true God, he acknowledged the God of heaven. So under God's direction, Cyrus invited all the Jews, it says, whose spirits that God had moved to return and help build the temple. And he ordered all their neighbors to assist with finances and goods, and the Jews were moved back, or were moved, I'm sorry, by the fact that God's temple would lie in ruins back in Jerusalem. Now we're going to find in Ezra, as you would expect, because this is how our life goes, right? That when they go back to accomplish God's purpose, there is immediate opposition to the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. The enemies of God in Israel, well, they are going to be persistent in their attempts to stop the work. They remember what God had done through his people before. They certainly didn't want that kind of power in their region again. And yet it all sounds like this great setup for the rebuilding of a nation. God brings back this incredible movement of his people, but God only motivated the beginning of the rebuilding. The people were back to pick up the vision to see it happen. And that is the same today. When God moves us through his spirit, but we still have to obey. Action has to follow that call in our lives, and, and sadly, as we're going to look at next week, this temple project, well, it didn't get finished immediately. In fact, the Israelites were so intimidated by their enemies that the project got begun, but it lay idle for 16 years. A reminder of a job unfinished. But remember all the people who sent the gold and the silver and the livestock and all those things from, from Babylon with these people? even sadder part is that for those 16 years when the temple lie in ruins not rebuilt many of the people of Israel built themselves lavish homes with all the things they brought with them even while still others among them Israelites lived in poverty during this time God needed to re-inspire his people to finish the task and that's just what we read that he did. In Ezra chapter 5, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Haggai the prophet 
And Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And of course, we have the books of Haggai and Zechariah in the Old Testament that we can read. And we know that Haggai, through Haggai, God rebuked the people for their failure to rebuild his temple while at the same time building their own home. What kind of house does God have? What kind of home do you have, God would ask them through Haggai. And then Zechariah prophesied about a merciful God who was still intent on that rebuilding happening. So these two prophets. They stirred Zerubbabel and they stirred Joshua to pick up the project again and another wave of, of those who had been um, dispersed or brought into captivity came back to the city and, and God's work through um, his people began because God works through people who catch his vision. The vision had been there all along for 16 years while it lay idle, but God worked through these two and through these prophets who caught his vision. But by this time, Cyrus had been replaced with Darius. Now, Darius was not a family member. He was actually uh, Cyrus's previous bodyguard. So probably through some type of a coup, which not be abnormal during those times, Darius is the new king. And there's this vision to rebuild, so they start to rebuild, but the enemies again come and, and they oppose him. And so what we find through many things in the book of Ezra is that two letters go to King Darius. One from the opponents or the opposition of the Jewish people that says, do not let them continue to build this temple in this city. The other from the Jews, the elders of the Jews, who say to Darius, look back in the record and you will find written down from King Cyrus this edict that says this is supposed to go through. And these events are going to unfold in a way that allows us once again to see how God shows himself to be king of the kings. In Ezra chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 1, and we read these words. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored at the treasury in Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Media, and this is what was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon to return to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Providentially, God had that written down so they could go back to that. And so this is what Darius writes to everyone. He says, Now then, Hathani, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bazani, and you who are other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on the site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury. 
from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily, without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven. And catch this part, here's his motivation, and so that they may pray for the well-being of the king and his son. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, the beam is to be pulled from their house, and they're to be impaled on it, and for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it that it be carried out with diligence. And if you read further in verses 13 through 15, you'd see that that's exactly what happened. And soon enough, the temple was finished. Now, I find, I find it really amazing that by being faithful to God's call, by restarting this building project that God had given them the vision for, by appealing to the new king, who was not a follower of Jehovah, but was under the influence of Jehovah, who was sovereign, that God was able to accomplish three things. Number one, like these neighboring nations were told, stay away. And if you don't, <laughs> things will not go well for you. Number two, the whole project was funded by taxes they had received from all of these nations in the region, and it was paid for in full and, and third. But they were told to supply, supply sacrifices for the temple so that the priest could offer them, as he says, for the king and his son. Now, the temple was completed. But the city would not be. In fact, it won't be completed until God gives a vision to another man named Nehemiah that we'll read about. I want to put all three of these to talk about his work among the kings because we've seen it through three major kings already. But we'll have to pick that other one in the, up in the series a little bit later when we cover it in the book of, of Nehemiah. But today, um, that's a great story, right? I mean, God moving people and showing his hand and accomplishing his purposes but in preaching class, I always ask, uh, told to ask the question, so what? Okay. So, so let's talk about the so what. What's the application? Meaning, what are some things that we learn that apply to our life today from this particular story? I'm going to take you through six. We're going to go kind of quick. Okay. Number one is this, that God is sovereign. I'm going to come back to this because it's so important. He used Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to discipline. God's people by taking them into captivity. And then he used Cyrus to send them back from captivity. God is in control over all human affairs. He can choose to raise up a nation. He can choose to tear it down. As he sees fit, he raises up leaders. He moves away raises up presidents, he moves away presidents. If he can bring a virus, he can take a virus away. That's pretty practical. And yet here we stand. Me without a mask only because I'm up here. <laughs> and most of you in your mask. Right? Asking God, please take this away. Now, God is sovereign. And in addition, don't miss the fact that like the Jews, 
God means us, his people, through his spirit to accomplish his purposes, both in our lives and in our world. Yet, like them, we have to choose to cooperate with him if those purposes are going to be accomplished. Number three. Can we remember that God keeps his promises in this text? I mean, here in our text, we see that it's kept his promise to discipline the people if they continue to disobey him, if they continue to reject his leadership, if they continue to embrace other gods, and they did. But he also kept his promise to bring them back to Jerusalem after 70 years. We would do well as an application piece to remember that there are promises of both blessing and discipline in the scriptures. And God is faithful to deliver on those promises. And can we just acknowledge like the choices that we make in our lives lead to God's blessing or God's discipline in our lives? Number three, I just think it's important to put in here, just remember the Sabbath. We ought to spend more time and will someday on this, but remember the commandment in the Old Testament was, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Okay? Now, it's not a repeated command in the New Testament, but certainly the, the punishment of the seven years and the application of that ought to remind us that this was an important principle to God in his kingdom. When you think about Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, it was always about how to observe the Sabbath, not whether to observe the Sabbath. God intends for us to take time to rest and to honor him. Those were the purposes of the Sabbath, and that principle is still for our better today. Now, number four. Remember that God's discipline is to help not to harm. After centuries, literally centuries of disobedience, God sent the Jews into captivity. He sent them there, however, to turn them back to himself, not to destroy them. He could have done that, but this was God's loving hand of correction, not an act of condemnation. God had been compassionate. He'd been gracious. He'd been tolerant them and patient, and he even sent many of his prophets to speak truth to them. But the people rejected both God and his prophets. You might be interested to, uh, to take a, a favorite couple of verses of scripture that are quoted and put them in their original context. This is their context, okay? These words from Jeremiah, talking about when the captivity is over. Jeremiah writes in verse 10 of chapter 29, the one that's not quoted, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come back to you and fill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then we start in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me. Find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the 
bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God's ways are God's ways. His discipline is for the purpose of drawing us to himself. So think about back to a time when you felt like you were under God's discipline. Okay? Or maybe at this particular time you feel like you're under God's discipline. What's he trying to get accomplished in your life? How are you responding to that? So number five, God knows when we need to be refreshed in our zeal to follow him or to serve him. I believe that completely. Just like the Jews who started and then stopped that rebuilding project, um, certainly all of us have found ourselves at times worn out or preoccupied, or I, I would admit, maybe you would or would not, sometimes even unwilling to do God's will uh, for different reasons. And for these Israelites, it, it was complicated by a false start. God called them, they were all excited, a little bit of work got done, and then the problems came and they stopped and it was being called, they're being called to do it again. You know, and maybe like you find yourself just Tired of fighting with your spouse, or with your child, or with your parent, or your neighbor, or your co-worker. Maybe you're feeling defeated by that poor habit, or that addictive thinking that you've tried to change before, but it, it never lasts, so why try again? You're thinking, I've had a lot of restarts. And I think it's interesting to note here that God called two of his servants into action. And those two servants inspired two leaders who inspired a whole nation. Listen, God puts people into our lives to catalyze change, to initiate change, and spur us on to a new work or to finish a work that has begun. New starts begin with God, but they always involve obedience. remind us again of this world and our life. In all, there's going to be three groups that return to Jerusalem in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now these Jews, they weren't slaves in Babylon and Persia. In fact, some of them had risen to places of prominence. You'll remember from other Bible history that Daniel had risen to a place of prominence and was an advisor to at least three different kings. And some of the Jews were quite comfortable with being comfortable there. But that wasn't God's plan. As our team comes forward this morning to, to lead us, I want to just ask you a question. <clears throat> like, how comfortable are you becoming in this world? Okay, separate out from other things. How much do you long to be with God? Now, it's not wrong to pursue a career in this world. It's not wrong to make a home here. It's not wrong to rise to a place of influence in our world. As long as we don't lose our perspective and our focus on the goal of being in heaven with God as the ultimate prize because this world is going to end. 
we all will go to a new home. That place you're going, that it's heaven. And if you can be sure of that, and we can track through this book, and you can learn some things about what does it look like to have heaven as my ultimate home, but this place as my current home. And how should I function from this place? But listen, if you're not sure that heaven is your home, your eternal destination, I would love to talk to you about that today. Out in the parking lot, with a mask on, even, <laughs> in the middle of COVID. Let's pray Father, you are our God. We are your people. So many lessons for us to learn about our stubbornness, about our disobedient hearts, about our hearts that at other times long to be in the center of the earth. Lord, they're all leading us to home. May that home be with you. Lord, if we're not sure, maybe. Rectify that even this day.